動でお風呂を沸かしますお風呂の線は決まったか自動でお風呂を Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast. This week, coming to you live from Oxford! My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the longest professional baseball match on record only lasted so long because the umpire's rule book was missing the bit that explained when a match should be stopped. <laughs> That's amazing. So, I, I kind of think that an umpire should already know the rules by the time he's starting to umpire yeah, the game. Yeah, true. you would think he so. Should, halfway through, he shouldn't be going, oh, I'm just going to check that. <clears throat> Well, yeah. this was unprecedented times in the oh, baseball okay. world. So this was a match that was on April 18th, 1981. It was the Paul Tuckett Red Sox, and they were playing the Rochester Red Wings. And so these are smaller teams in a different league, uh, professional baseball players, though. And uh, Paul Tuckett, it was played there, which is in Rhode Island. Big deal for Paul Tuckett, because the, uh, the newspaper the next day said, not since the time that they had to shoot the drunken camel at the city zoo... <laughs> Has there been this much excitement in poor Tuckett? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But it was, it was 1981. Long. 1981. Yeah. So it sounds like a weird match from ages ago, but quite recently, really. At the start of the match, there were 1,700 fans watching. By the time the game eventually ended, which was 4.07 in the morning, there were 20 people left watch still watching the match. 20, which I feel is quite a lot. I read that some of them were asleep. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, they all got given a season ticket, so yeah. it paid I off for them. I think some of them got lifetime passes. Wow. Yeah, they did. Wow. That's true. So it was, this is the longest baseball match on the world, which is eight hours and 25 minutes. It really isn't that long. I think what makes it long... <laughs> it's quite long. Well, it's, come it's away not... from a nation of cricket. That's... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because yeah. all the writing up, like there was a player called Wade Bogues who was 22 years old when the match started, and by the time it ended, he was 23. <laughs> Wade Box is quite famous. He became quite a famous player later. Did he? But this didn't happen to like land on the, you know, when it went past midnight, he turned oh. 23. The thing about this match was it was eventually stopped and they then resumed the match a few months later. Oh, you're kidding. Oh, that's, yeah. I thought it was just a midnight thing, the birthday. No, no. Oh, okay. But when they've carried on afterwards, it took like about... 18 minutes or something yeah. for them yeah, to did, just yeah. didn't they just have a score once basically yeah, yeah, yeah. and they yeah. did and then that's over and sort of thousands of people flocked because by then it was almost <laughs> as big news as the drunken camel thing so <laughs> the entirety of the nation practically was there for 18 minutes but Dan, what's the yeah. deal with the missing page? Who's ripped out the crucial page? Yeah, we, the rule book? we don't know if it was missing. We don't know if they couldn't find it. And just no one knew what to do. And so there was actually someone that they were trying to call on a landline who was higher up, who just wasn't near their phone. Also, it was, you know, 12 a.m. heading into 4 a.m. eventually. Yeah. So they eventually got through to him and they were like, what do we do? And he was like, stop the fucking match. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> why did they, why was it lasting so long? Do we so know? So what happens in baseball is you have an innings and and innings, you keep going with innings until mm. someone scores more in that innings than the other team. You get, you know, you do okay. a certain number that you're supposed to do, okay. and then if it's a tie, you just keep going until one team gets it's like sudden death. Nice. And they just kept going nil nil, nil nil, nil nil, nil yeah. nil, oh, nil yeah. nil. And then there was a one, 
Right. And then the other team got a one. And that was um, right. Wade Boggs. Um, he kind of got a home run to tie that game. And he said, I didn't know if the guys on my team wanted to hug me or slug me. Mm. <laughs> so, That's yeah. a great thing. But, but Wade Boggs, by the way, I just want to say, because yeah. he is famous, but the most thing I know about him is he once consumed 107 beers in one day. Whoa. Whoa. For, like, charity or...? <laughs> <laughs> he was sometimes just thirsty. People, sometimes people don't need an incentive, Dan, to drink the 100 best. <laughs> he was famous as big drinker, but then this is the record that his friend said and he's confirmed. Wow. But so um, the match itself, again, it, I wish we hadn't told you it was just eight hours because when you hear the details of the match, it does sound like it just went on for like a week. So the accounts of the baseball players, a very cold night, the baseball players getting so cold that they were ripping up furniture from the dugout and burning it, snapping used baseball bats in half and putting it in this bin nice. of fire to, to stay warm, to keep them going. If you can going. snap a baseball bat in half, I don't think you need a fire. I think you're fine. <laughs> Put a jumper on. These people are pathetic. I know. <laughs> it was cold. It was really cold. Yeah. And what that was one of the problems. It was a really windy day as well. And so the problem was it kept being nil, 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 nil because no one could get any home runs. And the reason was they kept whacking it for miles and miles and the wind would just blow it back into the stadium. Oh, yeah. Were they playing blew- with a boomerang, it turned out? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, extraordinary game. It is, it is quite pathetic. If you look at sports matches of yore, where they basically, before all these rules were codified for all the sports in sort of mid to late 19th century, they just went on for days and days and days, didn't they? You you'd get football matches and rugby matches with hundreds of participants you'd have one village playing another village and they play from dawn until dusk for like four days straight it was great i think the first recorded football match ever in sheffield in 1794 that was three days long and the match report said three days long a very good match and it felt necessary to note that although there were quite a lot of injuries no one was killed (laughs) (laughs) but that's amazing because that team before that game they were called sheffield monday weren't they (laughs) <laughs> very strong but on the flip side you do get short baseball games as well and there is a record for shortest baseball game ever which was uh, in 1916 and the match lasted for 31 minutes and wow. yeah and that's really quick for baseball and the reason is both teams beforehand spoke to each other and realized they both hadn't trained to catch which was going quite no, early no yeah. so but the problem was for the fans <laughs> who came to the match is that the game started 30 minutes early so the game ended before it was meant to start <laughs> So fans rocked up and they're like, this is going to be great. And then they saw like the final batter or whatever. That's and then amazing. they all went off. I, that's bullshit. I'm that's outraged for these people 105 right. years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you know the so first funny. ever baseball rule that was written down was that all players must be punctual? Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is um, the oldest set of rules we have. They're called the Knickerbocker rules. They were written in New York. Um, but the thing was, the teams were from New York, but... There wasn't much room to play in New York, so they always played in New Jersey. And so if you have to schlep all the way over the river to New Jersey, obviously you don't want people turning up half an hour late or an hour late or whatever. So that's why that was the first rule. That's good, interesting. Interestingly, a New Jersey is what these poor cold guys in the match we previously referred to needed. Uh, and also, the, in those set of rules, hitting the ball out of the stadium was a foul. So, you know, in baseball now, really what you're trying to do is whack it all the way out. In those days, if you did that, you would be out. And that's because the stadium was right next to the Hudson River. 
Uh, they couldn't afford to lose all the balls. So did the phrase, you knocked it out of the park, have a negative connotation? <laughs> <to those laughs> oh, idiot, you knocked it out of the park. Now we've got to go and get it in the boat. Um, there was one controversial rulebook incident, yeah. which I read about, and this was a guy called Earl Weaver, who was manager of the Baltimore Orioles, and he had a real issue with umpires, so I think he was manager in like the 70s. He hated umpires. He thought none of them knew the rules. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, he got told off loads of times for once he pulled up third base and just walked off the pitch with it. Um, <laughs> he, he once, Good the, move. The description was he, he was told off for pecking at an umpire's chin with the beak of his baseball cap. So <laughs> they had a tense relationship. Anyway, in 1979, he got in such a big fight with one of the umpires who basically hadn't called out what this guy thought was an illegal move of the opposition's that he went to the dugout, he got the rule book, he marched back onto the field, and he opened the rule book and started reading from it, saying, look, you obviously don't know the rules, you idiot. And the umpire got annoyed, understandably, and so then he started tearing the rule book to shreds and throwing it all over the field in front of them. One of the other things, um, early baseball, they never... So baseball players all have that cool glove that we we get as kids when we're playing. baseball glove. Yeah, that's what it's called. You don't yeah. mean and the giant gladiator foam thing. <laughs> no, I don't mean the, the audience. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, so those gloves. But in the, in the early days of baseball, that was seen as a very wimpy thing to have any kind of handwear. So you would just have to use your hands. But that was really damaging all the players because those balls, as we know, are very hard and they're, they're being walloped. So yeah. that was a real risk when you were a baseball player. And so it was a player as far as one historian was looking and found this player called Charles C. Waite, who was the first person who wore a glove, but because he was so scared of being made fun for it, he wore his skin tone color as the glove. <laughs> so he, he thought at that distance, they might just think in the crowd, oh, he's got slightly big hands. <laughs> but just one big hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just on the gloves and the catching and throwing. Yeah. So the world record for throwing and catching eggs was set by a couple of baseball players from New Zealand. Oh, is it? I guess they're, they're very practiced at it. Called Nick Hornstein and, and Ricky Piway in 2018. So is that like I throw an egg to you and you have to catch it and you have to be as far away from me as possible? Exactly. Does it matter how the egg is cooked? It does. <laughs> come on, that would be very... Tr- uh, uh, Frisbee a fried egg? Come on, that's a challenge. <laughs> it's 93.6 metres. Sounds boiled. Which is pretty, it was wow. not. It was a raw egg, oh. it, and it was very impressive. And this is at the, uh, the World Egg Throwing Federation, which is based in Swat- Swatton in England. We know where it's based. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, it sounds like an incredible party, the World Egg Throwing Championship. <laughs> so I was reading an account of it, and the, what, I'm just going to read you what happened on the day. Former champ Norm Fowler of Peterborough won the Russian egg roulette. No explanation in this article of what that is. <laughs> Well, then, the target accuracy contest, throwing at male model Joel Hicks, was won by Tina from Cambridge with two shots to the groin. <laughs> um, listen, we need to move on to our next fact. It is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that when acorn woodpeckers fight each other, the rumour spreads through the community, and other acorn woodpeckers turn up to watch. This is so cool. So they're they're really social. They're the most social woodpeckers, because a lot of woodpeckers are solitary, I'm sure you know. And they love this spectator sport. And they have these amazing battles over their territory, their trees, their granary trees, which are where they stockpile all their acorns. And basically, the trees are guarded by a group of males who are all brothers, and then a group of females who are all sisters, and they're all shagging each other as well as guarding the tree. But they're not brothers and sisters with each other, so there's no incest going on. 
Anyway, when one gender dies out, when one sex dies out, then there's a vacancy. And so, you know, a bunch of female acorn woodpeckers will want to swoop in to claim that tree. And these massive fights break out between the different claimants to the tree. And, yeah, people come from miles around. Not when I say people, I mean woodpeckers. I think you've identified too closely with your research area this week, Anna. Yeah. That's amazing. And they'll, spend, they'll travel for a couple of miles, and they'll spend, like, an hour a day just watching this big fight. Yeah. And they'll go back home. And I think it's useful, they think, because you can so, pick up social information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And spy out potential mates. But they leave their bit of tree that they're protecting yeah. in order to see yes. this fight. And it feels like that's the next little trick uh, of evolution, that you need a fake a fight and yeah. then send in your troops or around the back. like one acorn woodpecker who kind of goes around when everyone else is at the fight, just yeah. stealing their acorns. Exactly. Yeah. Or claiming the trees, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 You've the broken fight, the system. The fights, they last for a long time. They last for about a day sometimes. I know the woodpecker, the audience yeah, has come for an hour. Yeah, but cricket matches last for five days, so... <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Pathetic. Um, yeah, this family strategy they have is pretty uh, interesting, the sort of incest avoidance thing they have, because you get a breeding pair, right. and then you get a load of babysitter, let's say a load of babysitter males, okay, who right. are the offspring of the breeding pair. Got it. Then the breeding female will die, okay? Okay. But that means that there has to be a new female. However, the previous, the helper males, the babysitter males, previously couldn't breed, because mm. the breeding female was their mother. Mm. Okay? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, but now they're on equal terms with their dad because there's going to be a new breeding female. Yeah. So now there is just a, a parity. So they're all going to breed with the new female. So finally, the, and this is good for obviously for the babysitter males who now can breed, but it's also very interesting because it means these birds have an awareness of the relations of other birds to each other. Yeah. It's called triadic awareness, and it's it's, it's not in Woody Woodpecker though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Does it make, do we know if it makes it an awkward father-son dynamic? It's like if your parents divorce and then your dad marries a stepmom and then you also shag the stepmom. Is it? And that often creates tension. I think it does. <laughs> it's just why I wonder if it's the same. Yeah. But it's, it's so, yeah, like that family dynamic is so weird. It's also the case that a few mums will also live in the same nest, right? And when that happens and they're having eggs... They try and synchronize eggs so that they don't have one child arriving before the other. And what they'll do is if one of the mothers has an egg, they'll knock the egg out just to make sure that that's no I longer... I think they might yeah. eat it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they'll, yeah, and they'll get the, the youngins. So as if there are two breeding females exactly. and they haven't synchronized when they're having their eggs, yeah. the other one will push out or eat the egg yeah. of the first one yeah. until they get it right until and get, they get it on it right, time. Yeah. Or, sadistically, feed it to the mother yeah. often. You know, you've laid an egg and then your rival female pushes it out and then comes and feeds it back to you. But it's all because of this bizarre <laughs> setup where they have up to seven males and up to three females in every crew, yeah. isn't it? So you've got these three rival females at all times constantly laying and killing each other's kids and laying and killing each other's kids. <laughs> and it could be weeks. It could cannibalism for weeks and then you time it right and then happy families again. Yeah. It's like when your periods are synchronizing when women live together. It takes a few months to get in sync. Yes. And you kill each other's periods until they all arrive at the same time. Yes. Apart from, of course, that's a myth. You... Oh. It's a myth women's periods don't synchronize. 
Is it? Oh, yeah, you keep claiming it's a myth, but I... Uh, what am I... Let's move on. Um, <laughs> no, Dan. Come on, Dan. Please, let's see. Well, my research has shown <laughs> in the houses that I live in that there's something to it. Hundreds of thousands of houses, I'm sure. And I all had the to data. move a lot of times to different houses, particularly when they found out of my period experiment <laughs> I was conducting. The, um, the fights are pretty violent, though, because um, I read one place that said the, the birds basically have spears for mouths. Uh, and you'll see after the fights that the, the birds will have eyes gouged out, uh, blood all over them. They'll fall to the floor holding each other's legs so they can't fly, and they'll kind of crash to the ground. So they're pretty violent. Wow. You can see why people go to watch. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And by people, again. <laughs> uh, they make a sound that goes like waka waka. Oh, like Fozzie Bear. Fozzie Bear or Shakira were the only two I could think of. <laughs> when will they duet? Um, <laughs> what did Woody Woodpecker? His was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> is that in wow, any that's way? Pretty, that's that was quite, quite good, actually. Yeah. Not bad. So the the voice of Woody Woodpecker was a woman called Grace Lance. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also known by her stage name, Grace Stafford. Uh, and what happened was they had another person who did the voice. I think it might be Mel Blanc, but it was someone yeah, famous. He like was the original, that. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And she said, well, I'll do it. I do a really good impression. Not as good as Dan Schreiber, but it's quite good. Uh, and her husband, who was producing it, said, nah, I don't think so. I think we're going we're gonna to tender for it. And so she then did an anonymous audition tape and sent it in with all the other audition tapes, and he still chose her Woody Woodpucker wow. impression. Cool. Um, and for the first something like 10 years or so, eight years, in fact, that she did it, she didn't have her name on the credits. And that was because she thought people would be disillusioned if they knew Woody was voiced by a woman. Right. Wow. As opposed to a woodpecker. Because <laughs> <laughs> I would be devastated as a child. Yeah. Um, the trees are incredible, aren't they? You've got to look up the granary trees of acorn yeah. woodpeckers, which they mostly keep in the California, Oregon area. Basically look like a tree that surface is covered in crumpets. They look incredible. They look like, you know, people who are scared of like little holes. Yeah. Is it called trypophobia or something like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. Um, they would hate these because it's just loads of loads of little holes and each one is shoved an acorn yeah. into it. Yeah, and they true. test them. They'll shove an acorn in and then they'll practice trying to get it out. And if it's too easy to extract the acorn from the little hole they've made, they abandon the hole. So that's going to be too, too easy to steal. But they, it keeps changing because the holes always change size because trees change size. Trees are always growing and shifting a bit and acorns dry out so they will change size when they do. So it's a nightmare. Yeah. So they spend all of their bloody time moving. <laughs> there are, there are, it's not funny. There are up to 50,000 holes in a tree, guys. Guys, come on. please take it seriously. 50,000 acorns in a tree. It's just you and your brothers and your three weird wives. And you, you have to... It takes 20 minutes to make one hole. There are 50,000 holes in the tree and you're constantly moving the acorns to a better fitting hole. It's awful. I would want to die in a fight. (laughs) Um, Okay, look, we need to move on to our next fact. It is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the world's largest carpet museum is shaped like a giant roll of carpet. (laughs) For people at home, we've just put a picture of it on the screen. And I think that undeniably looks like a giant roll of carpet. Yeah, it's awesome. It's really amazing. Yeah. Where is it? This is in Baku in Azerbaijan. And this is something that I noticed when I was reading about a carpet war between Azerbaijan and Armenia um, on top of the actual war they're having. 
Well, the carpet they're not, war. They're not the most lethal weapons, are they? <laughs> no. Well, you can carpet bomb somewhere, I suppose. Yeah, I think you've got confused. <laughs> um, so these are carpets that come from an area called Nagano-Karabakh, which is a disputed territory between the two places. Armenian weavers are claiming that the Azerbaijan government is appropriating their culture. Because basically most people, most historians, not all of them, but most historians think that these are Armenian-based carpets. Um, but Azerbaijan has built a massive museum and most of it says, no, they're ours. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that this was so political, a museum. It's I quite political. It a fun museum, yeah. Yeah, um, apparently there's some Azerbaijani officials who say there is no such thing as Armenian carpets. No um, such thing. That's pretty, that's pretty ballsy to say Armenia doesn't even make carpets. I know. Well, they, they claim that the Armenians stole the Azeri like, oh. tactics and you know, stuff like that. And um, the UNESCO has said that Azerbaijani carpets are a masterpiece of intangible heritage. Uh, but a lot of people pointed to the large donation that the government made to UNESCO just before they made that. <laughs> so this is very controversial. And I know from me saying that, it sounds like I'm on the Armenian side. You know, you can make your own decision. But don't decide wrong. <laughs> James, you just absolutely torched our Azerbaijan tour next year. So thanks a lot for that. Um, wow. And this museum, yeah, it's quite new. If you look in Baku, I think a few of you will know this because like, they've had football tournaments and stuff there, but they built a whole load of new stuff in Baku quite recently. Um, but one thing about I noticed when looking in the interior of this is that all the floors are paved with marble. It doesn't seem to, <laughs> ah. doesn't seem to be a single carpet that's not behind Perspex. So. <laughs> so you funny. don't want to ruin them. That's a sign that you're treasuring your carpets. Yeah, I guess. Because yeah. they're really... I mean, they're as much wall hangings as for floors until pretty yeah. recently, aren't they? Yeah. I've always thought we should bring back the wall carpet. Yes. <laughs> I like it, yeah. It's gone out, went out of fashion a long time ago, like probably turn of the 20th century, maybe before. I've got a carpet on a wall. Do so you? it went out of fashion maybe 200 years ago, actually. <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Have you really, Andy? Yeah. Why? It's actually sound, sound, soundproofing. Yeah. Uh, that's maybe that's what they were doing, recording all their podcasts back in the day. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I was reading, um, there's Turkish carpets, rather than having a new Turkish carpet that feels like it's just really bold in its colours and really bright, getting a more antique feel to one is, is something that people chase more. And in the way to make that happen that they do in Turkey is that they actually take the carpets out for months at a time and just lay them out in fields. So if you go on Google Earth and you zoom in on Turkey, there is whole no. fields, yeah, of no. thousands of carpets that are just really? laid out in the open <laughs> because it's very dry, um, and they just sit there. And it's these, these carpet layers who understand fading so well that someone can say, I want it faded to like this kind of degree, and they're like, leave it to me. And they go and get the carpet when they know the time is right, when it's, when it's faded. Right? Yeah, and it looks really antique, and they dust it off, and that's when you get your carpet. How interesting. Wow, that's yeah. really cool. Is it fake? No, I, no I, feel, I do believe you. It's just that when you say weird shit like that, it's often not true. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and the way you looked at me, it was like, is that true, James? Is it true? Prove <laughs> me wrong. Um, so did you hear that in 2012, scientists at the University of Manchester made a magic carpet, which is did very they? exciting. Yeah. yeah, Not a classic mag, mag carp. They made one which, it basically, it can tell you when you're going to fall over, which is very useful. Oh. Yeah. oh, so it doesn't oh, fly either. It's not flying. It doesn't fly. No, no, no. They're working on that. But this is very useful. They're for working the... on that. They're not working on that. <laughs> no, no, no. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, they're not fucking working on that. It's the next obvious step, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
No, but how does it do that? Does it just have those horrible rolls in it that trip you up? And then no, a no, sign no. on the other side that goes, ha ha, told you you'd fall over. Quite the reverse. <laughs> no, quite the reverse. It's stuffed with clever fibre optic cable and that kind of thing. And basically it builds up a profile of your movement as you're walking around. So it's oh, not like... Have to, can you get amazing internet if you're sitting <laughs> on that carpet? Know. It basically monitors you, and if, you, if your movement deteriorates even slightly, it's for people who are elderly. It can tell your gait, I guess, can, right? Yeah, it can yeah. tell your gait. And if your gait cool. So it can't tell you you're about to fall over now, but it can say you're about to fall over soon. <laughs> so look out for that. You can imagine an alarm that went off when you were about to fall over would actually make you more likely to fall over. 100%. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know that there's um, people at the Harvard University that are working on a magic carpet? Same question. Okay. <laughs> a flying one? This is an actual flying one. Oh, wow, cool. Uh, and they have made it, uh, but it's the size of a banknote and it's only 0.1 millimetres thick. <laughs> right. Okay. So who's flying on it? Is it for ants? Like a cool... Uh, yeah, that'd be so exciting. <laughs> that would be awesome, right? Um, they think that they could possibly make it bigger in the future, but you'd need so much energy and you'd need to make it ripple. So what it is, it, it's like a really tiny bit of almost like paper, it ripples and ripples and ripples, and then the force that these ripples cause can make it kind of just go up off the ground. But they can also make it go forward. So it kind of is quite cool, but it's, I suppose we're a few years away from it. A... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, fair yeah. enough. It's a long way to go. That's very cool. Hey, can you... we go back yeah. to the, the countries oh, yeah, uh, yeah. that lead the world in carpet making? Because I don't think we've covered them all. There are a lot. Mm, okay. So Turkmenistan is a big one has the Guinness World Record for the biggest carpet in the world, which, by the way, is really beatable. If anyone wants to, it's 14 metres wide and 21.5 metres long, what? which feels shit. And it wasn't even made by that many people. Daily Sabah, which is a Turkish news site, said it was made by a total of 40 people, including one man. <laughs> it is, like, historically, it's, um, like, yeah. a women's role to make these carpets, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much everywhere. That seems to be yeah. the unifying thing across all of these carpet countries. He's, um, he's he always kind of, the women who do it. He smashed through the carpet floor. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Well done, him. But Turkmenistan's national flag has carpet on it. Does it? Which I don't think any of the others do. So I think that's wow. winning. But yeah, in 1992, when I think they became independent from the Soviets, they started designing their national flag. And if you look at it, it's a really nice flag. It's green with a red stripe and it has five carpet like motifs on it. They're called um, gulls. And they're just little carpet patterns. Oh, it's pat- the flag's not made of carpet material. Does it, have t- <laughs> does it have tassels? Because if not, I'm yeah, not interested. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have tassels, and if it was made of carpet, it would need a fucking strong wind to fly it. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. Um, um, can we talk about Weatherspoon's carpets, please, briefly? Please. Okay, sure. Okay. Every Weatherspoon, so about, what, 900 in the UK, has its yeah. own special carpet. And this wasn't known about until about 2015? known about in public. I must have been known about. Tim yeah. Martin, the boss, he probably knew. He probably was laughing up his sleeve at all of Everyone's us. Everyone's always so pissed when they leave. They never remember the <laughs> carpets. That's the trick. There was a guy called Kit Kalles who started a blog about the floor coverings of every single Weatherspoon in the country. And he assumed they'd be identical when he started. So I'm not sure why he was blogging about it. But, <laughs> all right, he found out and then he started the blog. It doesn't matter. They're, each one has their own, and they're often themed to the local area. It's really exciting. So there's a Britannia pub in Plymouth, which ha- is slightly cruise ship-based, you know. He wrote, Kit Kelles, yeah. he wrote an entire book about Weatherspoon's pub carpets, mm. and The Sun covered it with the headline, The Rug Pratt. <laughs> is this Britain's saddest hobby? Is that, a, <laughs> is that a pun on the Rugrats? It's a pun on the Rugrat, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, he was the person, the original people that made those carpets were the people that Axminster. 
Yes. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've gone a bit deep on this one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they, <laughs> they're the ones who have the royal decree. Warrant. Warrant in order to make uh, carpets for the royal family. Yeah. So, yeah, Weatherspoons and them. And then they stopped making it because people started coughing. But Buckingham Palace, if you've ever been inside, it's all Weatherspoons. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's true. taking up all the space. The ground floor is just a really big Weatherspoon. Yeah. I tell you what, the Buckingham Palace all day breakfast is. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Do you know, uh, one very famous red carpet that we all are aware of is the Hollywood red carpet um, that we see at the Oscars every single year. And I didn't realise that there's so much mystery around the red carpet at Hollywood. So when when they make it, they make it in a mill in Dalton in America, and they don't tell you which mill it's being made in. That's all we know. We don't know. It's got its own special color, Academy Red. Okay. They bring it there in a truck. It's very mysterious. They lay it down. They have people in tuxedos with little portable vacuums just to vacuum at every spot and make sure that the carpet's doing fine. And then when the, when the ceremony's done, they pick it up and they burn it. And it's only ever used once. It's just a big mystery. And they make a whole new carpet the next time. Why do time. they burn it? Because no. they don't want the material. They don't want. So a few people have stolen bits of material from it, and they've gone on eBay, and they're really worried that it's kind of like the Coca-Cola recipe. They're going to discover the recipe for the for the it's Hollywood red, red it's carpet. It's a red carpet. No, what do you want? It's not red. It's, it's like, a magic it's, carpet. It's kind of slightly off red. It's yeah, more it's like actually burgundy. Yeah, yeah, it's burgundy. They let people film the ceremony. You can <laughs> see what color it is. You can if see you the color, to... but you can't see what it's made of. It's made I of think... carpet. It doesn't matter. Oh, I uh. think, although I like the conspiracy theory reasoning. I think it's more likely that you can't reuse it because the next Hollywood year it's going to look like crap and it's 152 metres long so there's very little other use you can put it to. There's hardly anyone who's got use for a 152 metre long carpet. I think it might be. Maybe it's just made of something really awesome like Bill Murray's back hair or something. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, yes. You know, Um, people used to cover their carpets with other carpets to protect them. (laughs) Called druggets. Oh, Oh, yeah, I've got one on my wall. Yeah. Your wall is seven carpets thick. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, until the 19th century, druggets, which were just cheaper carpets that you put on top of your carpet for everyday use. Mm. And then if a guest came, you whipped the carpet off and <laughs> then you had the proper one underneath. That's, That's a sad thing. Idea. Andy has a drugget dealer, don't you? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that the world's first ever hot air balloon wedding was meant to happen in 1865 but the officiating priest refused to go up, so the couple had the first ever hot air balloon honeymoon instead. Uh, yeah. Nice. It's, uh, it's a, just a nice story about a couple called Mary West Jenkins and John F. Boynton. They wanted to marry in a balloon. They thought it'd be fun, and the reverend said no. Uh, he said it was too unholy, not, not appropriate enough, so uh, they, they just went up after the wedding instead. But it was a very exciting ceremony, this wedding. Oh, yeah. There, there were 6,000 people there. They were mostly there for the balloon, I think. They were there for the balloon, yeah. They were in Central Park, so they did get married in the end, but they got married on the ground. And how much do you suspect that the Reverend was just too much of a pussy to go up in the balloon? It's possible, isn't it? There was uh, the Baltimore Daily Commercial of the 10th of November, 1865. This was a couple of days later. They said that the official story was that the priest had to get the last train to Philadelphia. Okay, but then they did say the actual reason probably was that the reverend gentleman accustomed to operate solely in mundane matrimony had backed out at the 11th hour. Right. Mm. I wonder how much a history, like speaking of the shortest baseball match before, has been influenced by people needing to get trains. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a lot. What time is it now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And the reverend, by the way, was a guy called Thomas DeWitt Talmadge. And one reason why I'm not sure whether he was scared of going up is he was a massive publicity stunt guy. Um, they said that he was the most famous clergyman in the world, including Pope Leo XIII. He was really, really famous. famous. He thought that no one should be able to read novels. Uh, and Sorry? He also... <laughs> when was this? This was in the 1860s. People frowned on novels back then, didn't they? Exactly. You were supposed to be reading Greek. He said that anyone who read novels shouldn't be allowed to work in an office, a store, a home, a shop, or a factory. Where, uh, and where, he also where thought... Where, that, you, where are you going to work? <laughs> In a field? In a field. Yeah, do you get one of Dan's magic jobs drying carpets out for a living? <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's real. Yes, yes. Uh, but this guy who, the two people who got married, it was, like you say, Mary West Jenkins and Dr. John F. Boynton. And his doctorate was in geology. And he decided that as well as doing his wedding up in the hot air balloon, he also was going to make several electrical experiments while he was up there. Cool. Ooh. So he was like mixing business with pleasure. A yeah, bit. she must we have been what... slightly annoyed as he <laughs> so. you know, set up the, the cathode. The balloon was an interesting one. Uh, well, the owner of the balloon was an interesting man. He was called Thaddeus Lowe. And he had been a spy in the Civil War, but a balloon spy. Right. Yeah. It's so hard to spy in a balloon. You'd think it was quite conspicuous. It's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> but he, yeah, you're right. He, he, he had proposed balloons for use in the Civil War, which they actually were in the American Civil War. And, um, so he, what, would, what would he do as a spy, though? With the... you, would, you would, you know, look around. You, you oh, he'd see, be up there. He'd be up there. So you'd come back and further. be like, they've got carpets everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He demonstrated it for George, uh, George, for George Washington, who had died uh, about 40 years earlier. <laughs> Sorry, for the White House. He'd gone up in Washington with a telegraph key which linked him to the White House, so he was able to radio down to the White House. Um, you mentioned George Washington by mistake. For no reason. For yep. no reason. <laughs> oh, but... thank, you, thank you for picking me up on that. <laughs> um, the first actual marriage that did happen eventually in a balloon was in 1874. It was Mary Elizabeth Walsh and Charles M. Colton, and it was on top of the P.T. Barnum Manhattan Hypnodrome that they had. There was always a balloon on the top of there, and it used to go up all the time. And so they got married on there, and one of the people who was on there, who was basically Barnum's balloon guy, was called Washington. Harrison Donaldson and he was named Washington after George Washington hence the connection Um, and he was a daredevil and he was amazing so he used to do high wire acts and so on and then when balloons became a thing he did a thing whereby he would go up in a balloon but he got rid of the basket and he would have a bar just a bar where he would put his legs over and go up and he would start doing basically trapeze style acts where he was flipping around and so on and when he got very high, he would let the uh, the gas go down of the fire and he would come back down. And as he was coming back down, he would drop a human dummy oh, from no. it, <laughs> which everyone would see suddenly a plummeting oh, human and it would land on the ground and inside were business cards and flyers <laughs> for his act. That's amazing. And so, yeah, and so he used to go around doing this act and eventually P.T. Barnum saw him and employed him and what he used to do in the middle of Manhattan would go up in this balloon before shows and when he was up there, he would just throw Barnum business cards and so on. So New York constantly littered with advertising. The balloon was called P.T. Barnum as well. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, Well, I thought these guys are pretty brave actually because the wedding was postponed by one day because the balloon burst the day before. <laughs> it's a good way to get your wedding paid for. That was, it was the idea of the couple, the yeah. first wedding, and it was basically a way to get P.T. Barnum to fund their whole wedding and pay their dowry, because it was such good 
publicity. And also, because these became really popular, if you look through new searches of like the late 19th century, balloon weddings were the thing. And it was such a good way to get guests to your wedding if you didn't have mates. Because <laughs> thousands of people would come. And sure, they're there for the balloon, but yeah. the photos just say, I'm a seriously popular dude. Yeah. Um, and there was one, actually I read about one in 1884, this was in Pennsylvania, where the couple failed to arrive, they freaked out and realized they were too scared to do it. And all the promoters were going to have to refund the crowd because you'd be a paying customer as well as a guest. And they decided they weren't going to do this. So instead, the balloon's owner and his assistant like, staged a marriage. They posed as the couple. They got married to each other in this balloon, went up in the air under assumed names, but they only found out four years later it was actually legally binding. <laughs> <laughs> did they stay? Did they fall in love? I, don't, I really don't want to tell you the answer to that, Andy, because I think it'll ruin your night. Okay, don't tell me. Don't okay. say anything. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Uh, there was one in 1888. This was a wedding between Margaret Buckley and Edward T. Davis. 40,000 people came to that wedding to see them go up on wow. the um, hot air balloon. Unfortunately, the balloon then landed in a swamp, um, but it kept kind of moving along the swamp, so they were dragged for two miles, <laughs> <laughs> clinging to the ropes of the balloon, and they finished the rest of the trip by train. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, I have a favourite hot air balloon love story. This is an account from someone online. My husband proposed to me on a private hot air balloon ride. That's not the story. The pilot told us that one time he had five couples on a larger ride and one of the guys decided to propose to his girlfriend by having a big sign on the ground where they're landing saying, will you marry me? But he didn't put a name on the sign. <laughs> all five couples were dating and all five of the women thought, this is the best proposal I've ever received in my life and four of them were disappointed. No, would you? I mean, yeah, I think if, you'd roll with it, wouldn't you? If it's a third date... <laughs> it's too yeah, exactly. you know you can't roll with it it's got to be someone's you can't say oh yeah that's mine and have the other bloke next you go no it's not it's mine <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway so there is actually there was a service that offers uh, it's called D&D ballooning I think sadly the company shut down now but it exists Dungeons last and Dragons year. ballooning uh, you look too excited about that but no um, I think D&D is just the people who run the company it's in California and it offers mile high balloon trips and basically what it promises is comfort and discretion for a couple, it says you've got in your basket the privacy of an enclosed dome tent with your own private view as our discreet pilot ascends to one mile. We provide a CD player, you provide the music, blankets, pillows, and imagination, and it lasts an hour. And an hour? An hour. Five minutes <laughs> yeah. in. Take a sec now. Come on. Bring it in. Sir, we haven't actually taken off yet. Come on. <laughs> Oh, my God. Um, we're going to have to wrap up oh, very Can shortly. I tell you about one balloon hero? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Willie Coppins, heard of him? Willie or won't he? Go on, he will. tell us. Well, he will. he will, and he did. He was a fighter pilot in the First World War, Belgian man, very brilliant at shooting down observation balloons, right? Which were a major feature Reasonably of the First World War. Reasonably large target. <laughs> Look, they were very well defended, all right? He was so good at it. They were called balloon busters, the pilots who did it. He shot down nearly 40 balloons during the war, which is... Really big potatoes, okay? The German, the German army was so angry about Willie Coppins, they specifically tried to kill him with a booby-trapped balloon. They put up a balloon with explosives. But get this, once he was being shot at from a, a German balloon in his plane, and he coolly just flew up and around and parked on top of the balloon 
what? until it landed and then just gently slid his plane off and flew away. No, I Listen, don't know. if you're going to give me shit about carpets being laid out in Turkey. <laughs> <Yeah>. No way, Buster. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm a bit sceptical, I have to say. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm with Dan here. That's an abrupt break. That's an emergency break for a plane to land on a balloon. No, it's a very soft landing. Surely. No, it's the softest <laughs> landing you could possibly have. If you have. think about it, you'd need a vertical takeoff and landing plane, right? Like most planes kind of come into a runway. So it might have like... been a very long balloon that he was like, they had the best <laughs> long balloons that he was ah. landing on. That's the runway. A zeppelin. A zeppelin. It was a zeppelin. Yeah. yeah. Any further questions? <laughs> <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> uh, look, I hate to cut this off, uh, but we got a train to catch. Um, <laughs> So that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. We've also got a link to all the rest of the tour dates of this nerd immunity tour. Oxford, thank you so much. That was so much fun. Thank you for coming out, being with us here tonight. Really appreciate it. And we will be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.